You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. It's great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, thank you so much for having me here with you. Um, as I'm singing these songs and kind of looking around, I can, I'm just flooded with a lot of memories from different uh, relationships uh, that I've built here. My wife, Maureen, and I led the teen ministry here, the youth ministry here, for many years, uh, for several years, um, before kind of our ministries merged a little bit. But uh, So there's a lot of, it's just kind of weird being back here because we used to have our youth ministry nights in that cafeteria in there and uh, uh, teen devotionals and midweeks and all kinds of stuff. And I brought my oldest daughter, Isabella, and my second daughter, Raquel, here with me today. And they were babies when we used to, they were toddlers when we used to come here uh, to this building. And now they're like, you know, teens. So it's just really bizarre. Uh, being a teen leader, being working with high school students and parents, I was like 23, 24, you know, trying to like tell parents like, uh, I don't know if you should talk to your kid like that, but I don't know, I'm not, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? Uh, and so full circle now to be a parent of a teen, right? It's just like bizarre. Um, but I'm just grateful to see many of you guys. I mean, I love Davida Fountain. She was one of our awesome teen leaders. and. Even her shirt, God is Awesome, is just Davida. Like, she's like part of our family almost, you know, and I love uh, seeing Davida. I love seeing Owner Ramona. So Owner Ramona, we're like, Owner Ramona Thomas, I was, again, I was 23. They're in newlyweds, and they were in our teen ministry. I'm a single adult. They're the only married couple in our teen ministry, teen leadership group. And, and they would like, I'm not going to, well, I'm going to kind of throw them under the bus a little bit, but. But this just shows you kind of how the experience, you know what I'm saying? Like, they would uh, sometimes, you know, as a newlywed couple, you're learning. And you're learning each other, and you're getting some bumps. And you, might not, and you might not be able to show up to a teen event because you're still trying to resolve your issue, you know? And I just would not understand that. Like, I just couldn't understand. Like, we have, you're a teen leader. Like, you need to come to a teen event to be with the high school students. And they would call me, tell me, oh, we're still resolving. I'm like, resolving what? Like, I don't get it. You know, I'm 23. I'm, like, right out of college. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But you need to come to teen devotional. Like, what's the deal, you know? And, uh, but I just remember, so... Obviously, a couple years later, I get married, and I'm like, oh, yeah, we barely made it to church this morning because <laughs> on the way over here, you know what I'm saying? So uh, it's just memories, right? When I see owner Ramona, uh, I don't know if Oscar and Jessica and Mia are here, but same thing with Oscar and Jessica, uh, you know, they would come over. Yeah, anyway, it's stories. There's just stories, right? Um, I ran into Stephen, Stephen Natalie Poblowski. I mean, I was, I was, I was, Marina and I were like their first, one of their first double dates, you know, uh, we were at their wedding and just to see the relationship and um, I don't know, it's just cool. Uh, is Kike here? Kike's here? Where's is Kike? Oh, she's in Hawaii. Okay, so Kike, same thing. Kike was in our campus ministry and I remember she was studying the Bible and her dad wouldn't let her get baptized. We went to the dad's house awkwardly to try to give, bring some gifts and like... You know, I'm, again, I'm like 20, you know, <laughs> and the, but, the, but it worked and they let her get baptized. <laughs> it was great. So anyway, it's just cool. It's just really cool full circle to come back. Now I'm, I'm, I'm here with you um, a few years, a few pounds heavier, a little less hair, some gray hair on me now. And it's just a different vibe. You know what I'm saying? But uh, God is doing his work, and I'm grateful for the example the South Bay Church has set. A lot of things that we have done in Greater Long Beach Church uh, are imitated. Like, really, we just kind of copy and paste what South Bay is doing, because you guys have set a great pace and have set a great example for us. And so uh, we just want to thank you. I just want to thank you for your love for God, your sacrifice over the years, your example of faithfulness. Um, and I do want to lift up Rhett and Martini Butler. They're awesome, and we love Rhett and Martini. <laughs> Um, you know, Rhett, Rhett and Martini were with us in Long Beach for a few years, and uh, God used them in a great way, helping different parts of the ministry there, and then God took them to Vegas, and then uh, he called me, he's like, I want to go in the ministry, man, and I was like, I might have a spot, and called the Marichis up, I was like, dude, you want Rhett Butler, trust me, 
And uh, I mean, I'm just really proud of you, bro. I'm really yeah. grateful for your friendship and very excited to see how God is using you here in South Bay. And then, uh, you know, obviously you love the Wingies, Andy and Karina, and uh, I studied the Bible with them, uh, with their kids. Uh, I used to go to, their, to dinner at their house almost every week. And, uh, you know, they, they're just kind of stable presence in my life over the years. You know, I love Andy and Karina. And what can you say about Stephen Jackie? You know, I love Stephen Jackie. So grateful for them. We can, we can thank Stephen Jackie. I mean, they're awesome. Come on. This, uh, these past two years, primarily as a minister, it's just been tough. It's been tough to be a minister these past two years. I've been in the ministry. I've been a minister for over uh, 21 years, straight out of college. Okay, this is all I've done. All I know what to do. You know what I'm saying? Like, just working with people, leading church, leading ministry, helping people to remind, to remind people about God and God's presence and Jesus being Lord. And these past two years, I mean, has surfaced so much pain and so much uh, hurt, but also kind of, I, I got to say it, guys, just a little bit of ugliness in the, Christ, in the Christian world. Yeah. Um, we, we have... It's been so polarizing, so challenging. And so the minister has been sort of in the middle, trying to keep everybody together yeah. and, and, and fielding sort of attacks in a way. You're not talking about this too, as much as we need you to, or you shouldn't talk about this as much as you are. Or, you know, yeah. Kind of that balancing act. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I got to a point um, where I was just done. You know what I'm saying? I was just like, and I'm a people person. I like people. I like being around people. I like hanging out with people. And I remember telling Maureen, I was like, I just don't like people anymore. I just don't. I'm not really into people right now. And, uh, and, but, but, but it started leaking out into our marriage, into my parenting, and, you know, just kind of the irrit irritability, the frustration, the anger, the, all that kind of stuff. And we just had to wave the white flag, like, Steve, Jackie, we surrender. We can't do it. We don't know what to do. And I appreciate so much Steve and Jackie in that moment because they were like, listen, here's what you need. You need to go on a two-month sabbatical and just get your bearings again in Christ. Get your bearings in God. And sabbatical is not, it's not vacation. It's an intentional uh, time for a minister, a pastor. And this is done in academia as well, professors and stuff like that, to be able to to get your, in the spiritual realm, the church world, to get your bearings in Christ again, to remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing, to create the space to attend to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, I appreciate Steve and Jackie at that moment uh, initiating that, ministering to us, uh, shepherding us, walking with us through that uh, time. And I love them. I'll always be loyal to them and always love them. And I'm just grateful for you guys. So you guys are blessed to have Steve and Jackie here uh, with you guys. Um, I know you've been doing Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, yeah. and which is super exciting. And during my sabbatical, uh, I had two, two pastors that were pastoring me through their writings and through their um, uh, blogs and, and videos. Uh, one was named John Mark Comer, who wrote this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, yeah. uh, which our staff actually, Coastal Lay staff, is currently reading. And, uh, and the other one, his name is uh, Rich Viotas, and Rich Viotas is the kind of disciple or apprentice of Pete Scazzaro, who's the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So P Rich took, he's now leading the church that Scazzaro started in New York, uh, but he's written a lot about spiritual formation. You could tell in his writing he's very similar to Pete Scazzaro, right? So uh, these two guys during my sabbatical were just like, they were like my ministers. <laughs> like they were just... The stuff that they were talking about. And so I started learning a lot about silence and solitude. I started learning a lot about spiritual formation and contemplative prayer and Lectio Divina and all the things that you guys have been talking about here in Emotional Health Spirituality. So I brought it to our church in GLB, and we've actually done it corporately, not, not, not the, uh, the curriculum so much, but more so some practices, spiritual practices. So before we get into God's Word today, I figured, why don't we practice some, a time of silence, create some space in our heart, in our minds, as we attend to God, and then I'll lead us in the word of prayer. There's a lot in our world happening. There's a lot in our world that's happened within the past seven days. 
that has just triggered uh, conversations. Uh, obviously, the, the tragedy in Buffalo, uh, the massacre there with 10 uh, African Americans who were murdered uh, that same day, I think, or, I think, or the next day uh, in Laguna, in, in Orange County, yeah. a church service. Somebody walked in and, searched and shot up the church. Yeah. Uh, you know, four people were injured, one passed away, one died. Just, that's just in a weekend. Last weekend. Does that make sense? Yeah. Let alone everything that's transpired since. So I just think, let's just take a time to, to be quiet before the Lord. Get our hearts and our minds ready to receive his word. Amen? Yeah. All right. Father, open the eyes of our heart this morning. Help us to get rid of the distractions that are coming our way. But even, Father, help us to be, have grace on ourselves when we are distracted because it's just another opportunity to come back to you. Help us to uh, normalize distraction in a way because it is a way of us being able to return to you. It reminds us over a hundred times a day we can come back to you. God, we come before you in need of your word, in need of your Holy Spirit, in need of Jesus and the hope that there is in Jesus. Our world is dark. Our world is frustrated. Our world is chaotic. Our world is distressed, discouraged. Our world is distracted. Father, there is so much that weighs heavily on each one and every one of our hearts, whether it be societal things that are happening in our world or personal in our family or individually in our relationships, in our workplaces, whatever the case is, life is heavy. But you... You are a God of compassion. You are a God of mercy. You are a God of grace. You are a God of unconditional love. You are an awesome God who is always working, always moving, always, always about your mission to bring light and redemption in this world. I, I don't get it. There are many times I don't understand why you love us so much. I don't get it. I just know that that's a truth, that you love, that we are loved by you. And so today as we worship you through reading your word in song, in fellowship, in prayer, continue to remind us of your love that drives out fear. God, we want to say a special prayer for the families that lost a loved one in Buffalo. Yes. 
we want to say a prayer for all of our brothers and sisters in the African-American community who for many, this is life. It's just a reminder of the darkness of this world. We want to say a special prayer for the church that is mourning the loss of the gentleman who tried to protect the church by diving in to tackle this gunman who entered their church service. I can't imagine it actually raises a level of anxiety in my own life just being here right now. And, and so I put these, we put these before you knowing that you're in control, fighting to choose faith over fear. We trust you, God, and as we read your word, help us, help us, God, to walk in step with your spirit, to obey what you have to tell us today. We put the world before you with open hands, God, knowing that you're in control. And as the world gets darker and darker, that your people, your light, would shine brighter and brighter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians. You guys are doing a series. We're doing a series in the book of First Corinthians called Gospel Community. And um, we did this series in, in Long Beach uh, a couple years ago, and it's very, been very helpful. I want to give a little bit of background to what my thinking is in, as we read First Corinthians 9 and 10 this morning. Um, as we understand, uh, oh, hold on a second. Do I point it over there or over here? Is it on? Oh. Okay, never mind. I'm not there yet. Sorry. I don't know where I'm pointing. Can we go back to the title slide? Sorry. Okay. Okay. Um, Corinth. Corinth is a crazy city. It's a port city. It's diverse. There's idolatry, sexual immorality, questions about marriage. When you read 1 Corinthians, there's all this stuff happening in the church, disunity in the church. And Paul doesn't, what I love about Paul is he doesn't go into the city to start a new church. He addresses the issues and calls the church back to what originally caught their attention. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being raised to life, He is ushering in God's reign, his kingdom, and it is an upside-down kingdom where the poor are elevated, the marginalized are the heroes, women are vibrant participants and influencers, children are welcomed, and the table of fellowship is open to the outsider. This is what caught the Gentiles in Corinth. This is what caught their attention. These Christians, they just wanted to lean in because there's something different about them. And throughout Paul's life, every encounter was informed by this announcement of the gospel. Hence, gospel community, right? This gospel message, it informed the way he viewed politics, the way he interacted in relationships, his leadership, how he handled suffering and persecution, his view on generosity, his serving of the poor, and more than anything, his approach to the Gentile those outside of God's favor according to the Jews. And this message influenced a new community of God's people, the church. Historians and writers during this time were amazed by the Christian, taking care of the poor and marginalized, even among the unbelieving of society, standing in the arena, being mauled by wild animals without worry because their hope was in the gospel, enduring persecution and unemployment because of their faith and belief, Jew and Gentile eating at the same table. People in the world saw this and scoffed and mocked, but in the end would stand amazed and a little perplexed at their approach to life. In spite of incredible odds and challenges, God as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, using the weak of the world to shame the strong. And this community 
continually informed by the gospel message. You guys follow me here? This is kind of the, the story of Corinth in the early church. Throughout Paul's letters, we see him reminding the churches and teaching them not just how to behave, but how to think. The world thinks this way, but the gospel teaches you to think this way. So in, in, in my kind of imagination, or what, I don't know where I got this, I kind of, I don't know where, but I probably stole it from somebody. But I, I, uh, I shared this with the church in GLB Church a, a while ago, this whole image of having, um, let's see if it's on here, gospel glasses, all right? So the idea that, that I, I wear glasses, I don't have them right now, maybe it's because I'm nervous and that way you're fuzzy, I can't really see your faces that way, but... When you wear glasses, it's not that I can't see. I can see, but when I put on my glasses, I see clearly. Does that make sense? So the idea here with gospel glasses is that we can see the world. We can, you know, relate to the world, be in the world. But we put on these glasses and these gospel glasses. We view the world through the lens of the gospel. And what happens? We see the world clearly. And I found this quote from C.S. Lewis that I love. It says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I love that. Christianity, obviously, the religion that was formed because of this incredible announcement. Jesus has died, but he has risen again. And he is ushering in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it's an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom that you and I, it's a reign that you and I will not understand if we stay in the context of our world and being influenced by our world because it's a. when you put on your gospel glasses, you can see the world differently and clearly the way that God wants us. I love C.S. Lewis's conviction. I believe in Christianity, in the gospel, as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, because by it, I see everything else. This is what influences this incredible author's perspective on life. But here's our challenge today. We allow the world to infiltrate and inform our perspective way more than we do the gospel. When the gospel of Jesus trains our minds and we view everything through the lens of the gospel, the political landscape and all the uncertainty and tension there is right now doesn't phase us because we serve King Jesus. When the gospel of Jesus influences our perspective, racial tensions and inequalities can be discussed in a righteous manner, and the gospel leads to understanding, not accusing, to forgiveness, not condemnation. And in the end, the gospel helps us to see that we are all equal at the foot of the cross. Amen, church? When the gospel of Christ informs our perspectives and we see through the lens of the gospel, we become more and more the people of God has, who, and who God has wanted us to be to bring glory to him. We become gospel community, a people who no matter what background we have, we're able to unite in song and in mission for the glory of Jesus, knowing that he is our king, he is our Lord, he is our savior. But many times we need to be reminded, and that's why you come to church. You know what I'm saying? That's why you come to church. That's why we're in our scriptures every day. We need to be reminded. As we've seen in this gospel community series, the main issue in Corinth is that they were allowing the world's wisdom to influence how they did church, quote-unquote, in their city. And this led to arrogance, division, confusion about morality and doctrine, all because of foundational mistrust in the original message of the gospel that had been preached to them. A running theme through the letter of 1 Corinthians is found here, actually, in chapter 10. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. This is a running theme through the book of of 1 Corinthians. This mindset, this attitude, I have the right to do anything, you say. This is what Paul's saying. You're thinking this way. I have the right to do anything. 
There is an attitude that because of the freedom that the gospel provides and with the mentality of the world around them, this kind of mix that I have the right to do anything. So because of my rights, I will take my brother to court, 1 Corinthians 6. In my, because of my rights, I will be tolerant of sin in the church, 1 Corinthians 5. Because of my right to do anything I want, I will allow drunkenness at the, at the gatherings, at the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? I have my rights. True freedom in the Corinthian mindset was the ability to have the right to do what I want to do and not be dictated to or controlled. Who does that sound like? So Paul is dealing with a major attitude and mindset that the Corinthian church has accepted. And throughout the letter, he addresses issue after issue after issue with the gospel message. He begins to redefine what freedom truly is and what it looks like. Freedom is completely different through the lens of the gospel of Christ from what we are used to today. Our American citizenship and society is all about defending your rights and freedoms. We don't want control to be told what to do. People from all around the world migrate here to live under this type of freedom to pursue their dreams and happiness. Once you grow up in this mentality, it seeps into the church and our relationships. And we begin to have the, I have the right to do anything I want attitude, even as followers of Jesus. I can do what I want with my time, my money, my talents, my family, my house, my fill in the blank. And Paul's point is that this all changes in the lens when you put your gospel glasses on. So today what we'll be doing is taking a look and how this affected Paul as an individual and what he says. And hopefully it'll inspire us and challenge us in our view about freedom and rights, especially for the Christ follower, the Jesus follower, the disciple of Christ. After writing to them in chapter 8 about not being stumbling blocks to each other, he begins to defend his ministry and his rights as a gospel preacher and follower. And look what he says here. We'll read together different verses in chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in the hope that you'll do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this... For the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Wow, that's a lot being said right here. Paul is using the argument of freedom and rights and basically saying that he has the freedom and the right to take a wife with him on his missionary journeys, the right to receive compensation for his work, but he as an individual refuses these rights for the sake of the gospel being more appealing to the lost into the church. He's not saying everybody's got to do it this way. He's saying that's what I've decided to do. Then he's saying he's taking his freedom and he's deciding to relinquish, relinquish his freedom to become a slave. Look at what the, the, the he's kind of taking two, uh, a kind of a, a opposite, right? Freedom and slave. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm using my freedom to become a slave to others. So that by all possible means, I might win some over to the gospel and to gospel wisdom. He's showing them, by his example, what gospel freedom looks like. 
Because of his gratitude for his salvation in Christ and the freedom it brings him to live without guilt or shame, he lets go of his rights and his freedom to be able to help more people and appeal to more people with the gospel message. And so for a church who had been saying, I have the right to do anything, this is challenging. This is very convicting. So what I like to do with these scriptures, I like to go back then and there. It's a simplistic way of reading the Bible. You go back there and then. What was happening back there and there? And how does that now apply to me here and now? Are there anything that has applied to me here and now? For a church who had been saying, I have the right to do anything, this is challenging. Because of his freedom in Christ, he makes himself a slave to Christ's message and to others so as not to hinder the message. He doesn't have to do this, but he's willing to because of his love for the church. So this is why, for him, it's so easy for him to say stuff like, and if you read 1 Corinthians 6 about going to court, wouldn't you, he says, wouldn't you rather be wronged or cheated? Like, leverage your freedom for the sake of the other. The outside world's looking at the church, and you're taking your brother to court. Wouldn't you rather just be cheated or wronged when dealing with believers suing each other? Or he says, you know, eat at home so that when you come together, there's enough food for everyone, right? Because communion during those times was a, was a feast. It was a dinner. It was a meal. It wasn't just the little, you know, the little cup with the styrofoam in it. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't that. <laughs> it was, it was a, a full-on meal. And yet the, the rich, the wealthy would come early and start eating and gobbling up everything. And the poor, as they're getting off of work late, coming in, there was no food left. He said, eat at home so there's enough food for everyone. He also says, don't be a stumbling block to each other. Jesus died for that weak conscience, brother. Or he also says, everything should be done for the common good. Almost all the behavioral issues that he addresses come back to giving up your freedom or your right for the sake of those around you. This is gospel community, and it's big for us today. This example should inspire us toward love for one another at a whole other level. Instead of complaining about your needs not being met in whatever context you're in, ministry context you're in, it changes it to how can I help meet others' needs? Because of the gospel, to work harder to reach more souls for Christ, going the extra mile, giving up our time and our energy. Oh, this guy wants to get together at 9 o'clock for a study, to study the Bible? I'm too tired. No, but gospel glasses on says, oh, well, this, this gentleman really wants to pursue a relationship with God. So let me get that cup of coffee or that monster, you know, Red Bull or whatever and get my energy up so I can... Be attentive to this incredible opportunity for connection. Giving up my rights for the sake of relationships in the body. If it's better for me to be part, to to serve over here than to be over here, than to be in that small group or in that role or whatever, then I'm going to, whatever it is, whatever's going to help the body. I am free in Christ to be Christ's slave and therefore to deny myself for the sake of the body of Christ. You guys follow me here on this kind of line of thinking? Gospel glasses on. You see the world clearly. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, back to that, I have the right to do anything. Look what he says after this. I have the right to do anything, you say. He says, but not everything is constructive. I mean, not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. How do you feel about that? Let, let, let's let that sink in a little bit. As you consider your home and your hospitality and your table and who sits at your table and who you spend time with and how the different things in our society trigger you or whatever. Think about this. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Further down in that same chapter, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. We see Paul's understanding of freedom and rights. 
in these verses. The gospel informs how I view freedom and rights. These freedoms and rights must be leveraged for the benefit of the other, of the community. That I should consider what would be beneficial and constructive. This is love. In Paul's eyes, with gospel glasses on, this is love. And Paul goes even into, in, into more of this in a crescendo, right? As you read in a couple of weeks in, in chapter 12, the body, you know, the body is one and all the different parts come. And then 13, right? His, the climax of the whole letter in, in, in chapter 13. What is it? Love is patient. Love is kind. Lo- Everything that he's talked about from chapters 1 through 12 come to chapter 13. Everything, the marriage issues, the adultery issues, the court issues, the sexual immorality issues, the you know, eating sacrifice food to idols issues, all this stuff that he's addressing gets resolved in chapter 13. Because here's the point, he says, with gospel glasses on, you see the world clearly, and love, love is the anchor for everything. In the middle of these two chapters, chapters 9 and 10, as he's addressing this larger theme of freedom and rights, Paul says these words, and I'll close with these as we take communion today. It says in chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get to the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. This, in our church, is a very popular verse. How many devotionals and sermons have you heard on this particular verse? Run your race, guys. You got to run your race. You got to run your race. All this kind of stuff. I love it. I'm not hating on it. I love it. It's a very popular verse. We use it many times in our Christian lives to describe the race that we're running. But within the context of what Paul is saying, it makes the Christian life look a bit more challenging and real. Because he's talking, he's literally just talked about, don't I have the right to do all this stuff? But I'm choosing not to. But don't you know that in a race all the runners run? It's strict training. We're running for something bigger. There's something way bigger than just a good old pat on the back. there's something way bigger happening here. Because of gospel freedom, I'm going into strict training. I will have direction in my life in order to make sure my life on earth is productive because I don't want to be disqualified for this eternal prize. Corinthians, he says. It's kind of like, you know, Corinthians, stop thinking about yourself so much. You have a greater purpose in Christ because of the gospel. Get to work. Stop comparing yourselves to each other. Stop being so selfish with your newfound freedom in Christ. Use it for the benefit of others and for the advancement of the gospel. Run your race. Go into strict training. It's going to be hard work. Don't get lazy. Don't get distracted. Don't be aimless. Make your body a slave to Christ, full of self-control, and look at others and how you can leverage your influence to serve others and meet others' needs. Stop trying to one-up each other. Gospel glasses on. Can I get a little amen from the church on this? Come on now. A couple challenges for us today then as we take communion. Here's the thing. We will not all be like Paul, but we can definitely be called to imitate his conviction and faith in the gospel announcement. How would you view your freedom and your rights if you had gospel glasses on? Would it change your interaction with your neighbor or with someone you may disagree with? What if you wore your gospel glasses next time you were so motivated to post something on social media? What if Christians viewed the world a bit more through the lens of the gospel? Wouldn't the world notice a bit more? Be more curious. I would imagine that the world would lean in and be more curious about a community of people who would be willing to relinquish their individual rights for the sake of the other. 
A community of people who would leverage their individual freedoms to elevate the cause of the poor or the marginalized of society. Despite the hurt that many have experienced in the church, I have a deep hope that if the local church were to put on gospel glasses more and more, we would reflect the image of God and be able to partner with God in the mission to bring kingdom to the world around us. So the challenge that I have for the South Bay Church is simple. Get your gospel glasses on this week. Just put them on. If you don't want to wear glasses, get some contact lenses. Whatever the case is. But the point is, start viewing the world through the lens of the gospel. And the second challenge I have is to wrestle with that question. I got this from a pastor out in Atlanta, kind of mega church pastor, Andy Stanley. And many of you guys have heard of this guy, Andy Stanley. He's done, done a bunch of good stuff, but, but he, he's really good at coming up with like one-liners that, to help us remember things. And I love this question. So his point, his point was, you know, instead of asking the question, what would Jesus do? Ask this question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? With gospel glasses on, wrestling with this question, not them. You know, what does love, I know what love requires of my wife. Not that. Not, I know what love requires of the leadership team in here. I know what, the love, what love requires of that person or that person or that group or that, you know what I'm saying? It's easy. We're, we're like profession, professional, excellent at pointing out what love might require of that person yeah. or that person or that group of people or this, you know what I'm saying? Amen. That's not the question. The question is, what does love require of me? me? You might need to ask for forgiveness. Love might require you to overlook that offense. Love might require of you to forgive that person. Love might require of you to open up your table of fellowship to someone who is not like you. Love might require you to be silent in a moment when you want to make your point. Love might require you to speak up for those who cannot. Love might require you to listen, to be more curious and less suspicious, to ask more questions. This past week, love required of me a, a, a... It was a simple thing, but it was also somewhat painful because it just kind of, when you hear people's pain, it hurts. It it just, it causes pause. We had an issue in our singles ministry where uh, a a comment was made, a racially, uh, kind of a racial uh, slur or or comment was made and in a group setting. And it affected, uh, it triggered and it affected in a deep way some of our African-American brothers and sisters in our singles. And so they met together to, with, with another brother just to create a space to share. And, and so it was that plus, you know, the massacre in Buffalo, right? So, so there's a lot happening here. And I was on the phone and God, man, the spirit is amazing because usually my evenings are very, you know, it, it's sort of structured with four children and trying to navigate kind of different meeting with different people or meetings that we have or whatever. It's, it's very like, I, I say no to a lot of things. So I can say yes, you know, to dinner at the table with my kids. You know what I'm saying? Like there's stuff like that. But this time, my mother-in-law uh, took all four kids to Disneyland. Wow. Amen. On a school night. Don't judge me. You know you would do the same thing. You'd be okay with your kids going to Disneyland on a weeknight. And they spend the night over there. She brings them home before, before school starts. They, get, they still went to school the next day. Bella, you went to school the next day. You know you did. You know? Now, but it, it, gave, it gave an evening kind of open. So I was meeting with a, different, with a brother, and this group of people were meeting with another brother later on in the evening. And I was talking to the brother coordinating this thing, and he said, he said, Rube, if you're available, it would be great for you to come. And I was like, so there was a moment of... I, I don't know if they would want me there. I don't know if I, my presence, you know, people can kind of shut down when the leader shows up. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just unfortunate. It's not our heart. It's not our approach. It's not what we, how we want to be viewed. But it's just the nature of leadership at times, you know? 
And so I was, there was a lot of insecurity there, a lot of like, I don't know, bro, are you sure? And the, but then I was like, you know, just ask them. And sure enough, I mean, I have a lot of good, good rapport and relationship with a lot of these individuals, and so it was fine. They asked me to come and attend. And, and, I, and at that moment, it felt like love was required. Now, as a leader, you always see a problem, and you can find like five different ways to fix it. And so love required me of me in this moment to attend this meeting and not solve it, not fix it, but to sit there and listen. I'm getting goosebumps as I think about it because it's a very powerful experience. I love these brothers and sisters. I love them dearly. And as I'm listening to their pain, their hurt, their discouragement, that they don't feel safe bringing somebody who looks like them to our singles ministry? That was deep. Love required me in that moment to just listen. And it was awesome. After that meeting, no, I'm a preacher, so I got to say something. So, you know, I had to talk about something. I I share a different, I'm a verbal processor as well. So I'm talking kind of like, what if we did it? You know, I'm trying to like figure this out. But at the end, what, what gave me so much hope is that everyone, everyone around in that circle who had started that conversation saying, man, I, got, I, I don't know if I can be here anymore. They all finished that conversation saying, I feel hopeful and I feel heard. And this is not a, a, a like to lift me up. This is just a moment of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It, it was me wrestling with the question, what will love require of me in this moment? Reuben without love, would come in here and try to fix it. But Reuben, with love, says, let me just hear it all out. Now, I don't even want to take notes, because when I take notes, I get distracted. I just want to sit here in the presence of my brothers and sisters and listen, ask questions, receive. I don't know what love might require of you this week, but this is a good question to wrestle with. Now, I want us, with gospel glasses on, we're going to take communion right now. But I want to close out with just an imagination. Like, let's imagine a little bit. I want to invite you to have some vision of what the community would look like if we all had gospel glasses on and wrestled with this question. What does love require of me? Imagine with me what our world, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools would look like if the Christian wore their gospel glasses and continued wrestling with this question and answering the question, what does love require of me? What I imagine, I, would, I imagine an overflow of generosity and hospitality toward the stranger would happen without needing to be prompted or needing a program in the church. I would imagine that employers would want to hire more Christians because of their work ethic and their kindness and grace. I would imagine singles being a strong light among their peers to where their peers would want to lean in and find out why you would be so content and at peace. I would imagine husbands studying their wives and trying to, trying to love them the way that they want to be loved. What if you became the other? We had a midweek with Kit Cummings this past week. We're doing the 40 days of prayer with Kit Cummings, and he talks a lot about how, would you, how do you become the other in your marriage? Husband, what if you became the other, became your spouse? In other words, enter into her world instead of criticizing her world and vice versa. I imagine wives, gospel glasses on, studying their husbands and trying to love them the way they want to be loved. And the world around, wondering and leaning in, curiously asking, how do you make it work? I imagine teenagers in their high schools, gospel glasses on, answering the question, running their race, leveraging your freedom for the sake of the other, not being swayed by the latest trend, but being ambassadors of God's kingdom wherever you go, championing the cause of the outsider, being an example of love and kindness in the world and in your home, and your peers will wonder, why are you so joyful? Why are you so peaceful? And the teenager will be able to say confidently, well, it's because I serve Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my king. Brothers and sisters, gospel glasses on, 
answering the question, what does love require of me? Grace being dispensed, conflict being resolved, hospitality toward the stranger being practiced, light of the world, salt of the earth, running a race for a prize that will last, that we may share in the blessings of the gospel as God's people, God's gospel community, living out God's gospel freedom. Amen. And the church then says, Amen. Amen. Let us pray as we take communion. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as we take the, the, the bread that represents the body of Christ, as we take the juice, drink the juice that represents the blood of Christ, as we consider communion today, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, help us to see that everyone's welcome at the table. Everyone has a seat at the table. Even Judas, whom Jesus knew was going to betray him, sat at the table with Jesus, and Jesus still washed his feet. Help us as your people to love that way. In that moment, that's what love required of Jesus. I can imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying over and over that you would take this cup away from him, that he would not have to endure and go through what he went through. And yet love required of him in that moment to surrender his will to yours and to carry out your plan to die on a cross for the whole world. Jesus, you are our Lord and our King. And today, we make decisions individually, corporately, as a community to put on gospel glasses and continue wrestling and answering the question, what will love require of me? Help us today and this week to reflect your image, to see the world through the lens of the gospel, and live out your mission in our lives, leveraging the freedoms and the rights that you've given us for the sake of the community and the other. We honor you, we praise you, we thank you, we humbly take this in your presence. Holy Spirit, Jesus, Father, our God, thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.